Gospel this morning, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I'd like to address the issue of the centrality of Jesus Christ down through Bible history. Jesus Christ is central to the Scriptures. Christmas is all about Jesus Christ. When you consider Christmas Day, it's not a matter of you and I worshipping a day. We don't worship a day. It's an opportunity for us to worship Jesus Christ and to remember his entrance into the world and to recognise that and to honour that. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's, it's all about Jesus Christ. He is central to Christianity and all that is recorded in the Scriptures. And we see here in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, the Lord Jesus affirmed this fact where he said in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the Scriptures, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And go to verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Let's pray. O oh God, we bless you and we thank you for your precious word. Please, O oh Spirit of God, please teach us, empower your word this morning. Minister to our hearts, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus Christ is central to Christianity. And all that is recorded in the scriptures, specifically his coming into the world to save sinners. And that's what Christmas focuses upon, the fact that God has provided a saviour for sinful man. He's promised throughout the pages of the Old Testament and we see the fulfilment of these promises within the New Testament specifically within the Gospels. So this prophetic element in the Word of God should cause us to highly esteem God's Word because this proves that this is the very Word of God, inspired of God, inerrant, preserved for you and I in the King James Bible. The Bible is not a free-for-all as to how we interpret the Bible. We are not given the liberty to personally interpret the Scriptures as we will. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, please, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 19 and 20, The Apostle Peter made reference to the uh, affirmation of the sure word of God that we now have a revelation to rest our faith upon. Note in verse 19, 
we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Note verse 20, knowing this first, in light of the fact that we have a more sure word of prophecy, we have the revelation of God, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. So the Bible teaches us very clearly that you and I are not at liberty to interpret the Bible as we wish or will. There is no place for private interpretation. The Bible is truth and we need to seek to understand what saith the Lord. What saith the Lord? And the only way we can interpret the Bible correctly is to begin and end with a literal interpretation of the Bible. And we stressed this the other week. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's wisdom. See, God's Word is one. It is in unison. There are 66 individual books within the Holy Bible. God saw fit to use some 40 different authors, yet one book, one revelation, one God, one ultimate plan of redemption for mankind. This main theme flows throughout the Scriptures, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. The Word of God is fully accurate. It is truth. And because the Scriptures are consistent, we have the ability to compare Scripture with Scripture and thereby confirm its meaning. It's been well said, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. That's where we begin. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Because the Bible is accurate, it's consistent, then we can compare Scripture with Scripture and we will find that that will help us to interpret the Scripture correctly as opposed to our own private interpretation. The Lord Jesus here in Luke chapter 24 verse 27 affirmed the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures and beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus Christ affirms the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. The Lord Jesus refers to no less than 20 different characters from the Old Testament. As we read through the Gospels, we read of the words of Christ, no less than 20 characters. He quotes from no less than 19 Old Testament books. He refers to the main Bible themes within the pages of the Old Testament. 
like creation, marriage, Abraham, the Ten Commandments. He uses the Old Testament scriptures, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, in defeating the devil there in Matthew chapter 4. And he chose the story of Jonah to illustrate his resurrection there in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus Christ affirmed the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus said, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Lord Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament scriptures and affirmed that the centrality of the Old Testament scriptures lies in Jesus Christ himself. And he develops that in verse number uh, 44, where once again he affirms the fact that he is central to the scriptures. Note in verse 44 he makes reference to the writings in the law of Moses, in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So the Lord Jesus confirmed that he is central to the scriptures. He gives authority to the Old Testament scriptures. They speak of me, he said. The laws of Moses is in reference to the Pentateuch here in verse 44. The first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets is all the books of the prophets. The Psalms in reference to the poetical books. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. So within this division of the Old Testament, we have God's unfolding plan of redemption for man, leading us from the Old Testament into the New Testament and then into the eternal realm. And as I stressed earlier, we need to be careful that we interpret the Bible diligently. And that begins by interpreting the Bible literally in its historical setting and in its immediate context. We stress 2 Timothy the other week, please, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It can't be stressed uh, overly. Note here in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing, accurately interpreting, dividing the Word of God. So the Bible teaches you and I that we need to uh, be careful that we interpret the Scriptures Uh, correctly and Jesus Christ is central to the scriptures and the Bible from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation is an unfolding of God's plan of redemption for mankind. Now we also stressed the other week that always maintain a clear distinction between God's dealings with Israel the church, and the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. 
God deals with the church one way, God deals with Israel another, and God has dealt with the Gentile nations another. And we must always keep a clear distinction between the three. There is no need to spiritualize the words of Scripture. This has led to what we referred to the other week as Reformed Theology. Reformed theology. This has led to error such as a denial in God creating all things in six literal 24-hour days and the belief that there will be no future literal uh, millennium reign on the earth with Jesus Christ. This is all spiritualized. And according to Reformed theology, we are in the millennium right now and Satan is bound. Well, how can that be possible? Well, if you spiritualize it, if it's not a literal reign, you can say what you want. I don't think Satan's bound at the moment. I don't think so. So this is called amillennialism. This is an extension of Reformed theology. This theology has its origin in a man by the name of Augustine. Augustine who lived in a place called Hippo. Once upon a time there must have been lots of hippopotamuses there. Hippo is an ancient port city um, in northern Africa today Algeria and this uh, man by the name of Augustine was very influential and he is the one that came up with this idea of spiritualizing scripture. This same Augustine was instrumental in the formation of some of the main teachings within the Roman Catholic Church. Augustine purgatory, persecuting Christians, all stems back to Augustine. Augustine um, is a father of error and he has infiltrated uh, reformed theology and he is a father of Roman Catholic theology. So it's important that you and I interpret Scripture literally at face value. And as we survey the 66 books of the Bible, I'd like for us to note this morning that there are some defined periods of time in which God deals with people in a very unique way. These we refer to as dispensations how God administers, how God works during different periods of time. Note there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. one Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17. At the end of verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, The Apostle Paul said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. 
Now, note verse 17. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. A dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What did he mean by that? In essence, he was simply saying, God has given me a season. God has given me an opportunity to preach the gospel. The time is now for me to preach the gospel. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. God has given me an opportunity to preach the gospel. So we see this principle of God working through individuals for a season. And this is what we make reference to as dispensations. Within the scriptures, as you study from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, you will note there are seven main dispensation spelled out in the word of God from the old into the new seven of them we will study them in the weeks to come now out of interest in contrast within reformed theology there are only two two and this is what they refer to as covenant theology just come with me one more time into my theology classroom. It's important you understand this. I won't keep you long. Covenant theology. So within the banner of reformed theology, you have amillennialism that affects a person's position prophetically. But also within reformed theology, there is an aspect that is referred to as covenant theology covenant theology claims there are basically two covenants that god made with humanity summarizing how god has and is working amongst men today there is what they refer to as the covenant of works you might want to write it down the covenant of works made with Adam before the fall. What is this covenant of works made with Adam before the fall? It was simply this, according to Reformed theology. Eternal life comes through obedience. Eternal life comes through obedience. though it's not mentioned in the Bible. Did God ever say to Adam, if you obey me, you will inherit eternal life? No. There is no scriptural basis for this covenant. But God did say to Adam, if you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die see salvation has always been by faith never by works and according to covenant theology god made a covenant of works with adam before the fall 
But his eternal life was determined by his obedience. My Bible teaches me that salvation has always been by faith, never by works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Abraham was a Gentile who became the father of the Jewish nation, and the Bible teaches us in Genesis 15, 16, that he believed, placed his faith in the God of creation, and that was accounted for righteousness. The covenant of works. The first part of covenant theology that has no scriptural basis. And the second portion of this covenant theology is referred to as the covenant of grace after the fall. See, because Adam sinned, his sin has passed onto all humanity, which is true. Romans 5, 12. But according to covenant, the covenant of grace, no longer the covenant of works before the fall, the covenant of grace after the fall. So God from the fall, according to this covenant of grace, works through this covenant And he provides salvation. Salvation is made available only to whom God chooses to save in accordance to his grace. This is the covenant of grace. In other words, God in his grace chooses to save whom he wills And whom he wills to save, they are a part of this covenant of grace. In other words, God handpicks those that he will save and the rest will not get saved because God has not made a covenant of of grace with them. So therefore they will go to hell. Question, so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, did he not die for the sins of the whole world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So based upon the authority of the word of God, God did not make a covenant of grace with just a select few and he has damned the rest. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
So we accept from the scriptures that God's provision of salvation is available to all and it's not a matter of God picking whom he will save. The issue is you and I have before us the opportunity to become a Christian. If you accept God's gift of eternal life, you are born again. If you personally reject God's gift of eternal life, you will spend eternity in a place called hellfire. This covenant of grace is what we refer to as Calvinism. Systematized by a man by the name of John Calvin, the father of the Presbyterian Church. He systematized this teaching. But Calvinism, covenant theology, didn't originate with John Calvin. I'll give you one guess where it originated. It originated. We'd like to guess? Augustine. Augustine of Hippo. Boy, he was a hippopotamus and a half, I'm telling you. Unfortunately, Reformed theology and the offshoots of Reformed theology, amillennialism and covenant theology, is not only found in the mainline Protestant churches, such as the Anglicans and the Presbyterians and the Uniting Church, but also other denominations, such as the Baptists, unfortunately, hold to reform theology, which is a shame. We that hold to Bible theology cannot accept amillennialism, a part of reform theology, and definitely we cannot accept covenant theology. Because salvation is, has never been by works. It's always by faith. And when you and I read the scriptures at face value, the Bible teaches, for God so loved the world. Therefore, that word world means world. And Romans 10, 13 teaches us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that word whosoever means whosoever. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So based upon the authority of the word of God, we cannot accept reformed theology. It doesn't mean that we won't see Protestants in heaven. We will if they've received Jesus Christ as their saviour. They'll be in heaven. But they know, they'll know then that they've been wrong in their theology. So we that hold to Bible theology can't accept this part of Reformed theology such as amillennialism and covenant theology. 
Yet as we read and interpret the Bible, literally we see God's variations in how he worked within given times. And as the Lord Jesus stressed there in Luke chapter 24, the scriptures are in reference to himself. The unfolding plan of redemption is there spelled out in the scriptures from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. So a dispensation is an age or period of time in which God works specifically through a particular person or people to accomplish his will. Let's note the first little period of time where God worked uniquely. This is leading us up to the banishment out of the Garden of Eden before they were ban- Adam and Eve were banished out of the Garden of Eden. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3 please. In Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have the age of innocence where God created all things in six literal 24-hour days. And the pinnacle of God's creation was man. God created Adam from the dust of the earth And God created Eve from Adam. Note there in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. It's not complicated. Either you're a male, you're a female. It's simple as that. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Then go to chapter 2 verse 8 please. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then go to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So God placed Adam and Eve in a garden, the Garden of Eden. God gave them dominion. God provided for their needs. God gave them one simple restriction. And because they were in innocence, not sinless, only God is sinless, they could choose to obey or disobey God. 
Now, because they disobeyed God, they were cast out of the garden. And the innocence of man was engulfed in sin. And now man is sinful and has an active conscience. Note there in chapter 3, verse number 7, the Bible reads, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made them aprons. They were ashamed. Their conscience has been quickened. So we have within Genesis 1, 2, and 3 a specific way by which God deals with his creation. We're in the garden. According to verse number 23, they were banished out of the garden. Therefore the Lord, Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to the ground from whence he was taken to till the ground from whence he was taken. So we have a specific period of time in the Garden of Eden, known as the Age of Innocence. Now before this banishment out of the garden, God pronounced specific judgments on the serpent, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, upon Eve, verse number 16, and upon Adam, verses 17 to 19. Note there in verse 14 and 15, the judgment upon the serpent. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And note verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. What's he referring to here? Between thy seed and her seed, the seed of the woman, mankind. I will put enmity between you and the seed of a woman, mankind. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So in summary, we have within verses 14 and 15, as we draw towards the close of this original period of time known as the age of innocence or called the age of innocence by some God told the serpent that you will crawl on your belly and eat the dust of the ground then God said to the serpent that there will be a perpetual struggle what's he referring to he's referring to the serpent was Satan beguiling Eve. He's referring to satanic work, the work of Satan. And God said that there will be a perpetual struggle between satanic forces and mankind, the seed of the woman. 
from Cain to all humanity, ultimately Jesus Christ. And note this little phrase then, verse 15, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. We have here a glimpse of the gospel, the good news of redemption, in which Satan will be crippled, will, uh, Satan will cripple man, will oppose man, but ultimately the seed of the woman in reference to Jesus Christ will crush Satan and defeat him. But it will be at a price. Christ will suffer for the sins of humanity. Note the little phrase there, thou shalt bruise his heel. So we have here a glimpse of the gospel that Satan will oppose God's work and Jesus Christ born of the seed of a woman became flesh and dwelt among us. When he died on the cross he put to, uh, he, he conquered sin, death and hell once and for all. But it comes at a price, comes at a price Bruise his heel. Christ will suffer for the sins of humanity in pain for the sins of all. He makes salvation possible. In other words, as Isaiah chapter 53 reads, please. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. In verse number 5 it reads, Isaiah 53 verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, by his sufferings, we are healed. This pretty much sums up this glimpse of the gospel we have here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It shall bruise thy head. Satan will be defeated and thou shalt bruise his heel in reference to the seed of the woman that Jesus Christ will suffer in order to provide redemption for all mankind. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. He that was without sin became sin for you and I. His blood was shed. His body was broken. Thou shalt bruise his heel. I love Acts chapter 26 verse 18. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. When you and I repent of our sin and receive Jesus Christ as Saviour, the devil is no longer our Father. We have a Heavenly Father. God is our Heavenly Father. 
But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And the devil is out there blinding people concerning the gospel. And yet you and I have the message of hope. We've got that message of hope concerning Christ's coming, what Christmas is all about, that has the power to, to, to break down and to remove that blindness and provide light and truth because Christ has won the victory for us. This first dispensation ends with banishment out of the Garden of Eden. But God gives us the hope of victory. Thanks be unto God that gives us the victory through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And in the weeks to come, we'll study these other dispensations and we'll note within each period of time, we'll note the Lord Jesus and his work of redemption, the unfolding plan of redemption. And as the Lord Jesus said there in Luke chapter 24, all the scriptures are in reference to me. Jesus Christ gives his stamp of authority upon the scriptures. Jesus Christ is central to the scriptures. And I trust and pray that Jesus Christ is central in your life. See, if Christ is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Christ is central in the Scriptures. We see him from Genesis to Revelation. Mentioned, prophesied, pictured, illustrated in his workings, Jesus Christ is central to the Scriptures. And as we prepare for, for Christmas, may it be a timely reminder for you and I, just as our Lord Jesus is central to the plan of redemption, He is central to the Scriptures. I trust that Jesus Christ will be central at the centre of your life and my life. Unfortunately, the age of innocence came to an end when Adam and Eve openly violated the Word of God. In the weeks to come, we'll note some further ways in which God deals with man. But for now, my friend, this morning I'd like to just simply ask you two simple questions. Number one, Jesus Christ was willing to suffer. He was willing to have his heel bruised in conquering sin, death and hell. And he offers eternal life for all. And my friend, if you've yet to receive Jesus Christ as your own personal saviour, I'd like to invite you.
to receive Christ. And for those of us that are Christians, is Jesus Christ at the centre of your life? Is Jesus Christ at the heart of your life? I trust that during this Christmas season that you will allow Christ to be number one in your life. Because Christmas is all about Christ. And may we yield to his lordship because he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of glory.